Good morning. So we begin our new series uh, called Properly Formed this morning. It's on page 75 of your journal, if uh, you're tracking with your journal still. Now, those of you that have been with us for uh, more than a year will remember that we actually taught a series called this last year. Uh, so this is a return to a theme that, that probably is a theme that we maybe uh, in multiple ways need to continue with for multiple years. But uh, for this year, we're here asking this question about what it means to be properly formed, that spirituality is often something we talk about in very abstract and ethereal terms, and yet following Jesus is often talked about in Scripture in, in very firm and kind of graspable concepts. So the idea of this series really is that it's practical and formational in that it gives us practices or ways to think, things to do that will help us in our journey of spirituality in our journey of following Jesus and growing as Jesus followers. Now, other than today, the series is going to be navigated by our guest teacher, Bob Osborne, who many of you know, and if you don't know, you're in for a treat for the next three weeks after today. Bob will be here navigating this subject, which is his just he's in his sweet pot spot teaching about stuff like this. So you're in for a treat there. Uh, this is my last Sunday before I go uh, on my sabbatical, hence why I'm handing over to Bob to look after you uh, for, the, for the next few weeks. At the end of the sermon today, actually, uh, our chair of our board is in position down here. He's, uh, he's asked that, that he could, uh, with you all, pray for me and my family before we head out on our sabbatical. But for now, we still have one more sermon to do. Is that Okay. I mean, we could just like call it now and go home early, uh, and by the time I'm back from my sabbatical, you'll have forgiven me for that, but I've written the sermon, so should we go for it? <laughs> and uh, the this, this series is, is actually about thinking about our spirituality, and, and really what I want to talk about today is prayer, but particularly thinking about how we pray together, how we pray as community I think prayer is a complex thing to talk about for, for most people. I've showed you this picture before, but I love it, so why, why uh, you know, change from a good thing? But perhaps your prayers feel like this. Uh, Dear Jesus, a uh, lot of garble, and then amen, hopefully at the end. Is that, you know, is that anybody? Um, or maybe, like, maybe you're in that category of prayer where it's like, Dear Jesus, and hopefully I'm still awake by amen. Is that a, you know, is that, like, does it count as three hours of prayer if you start, fall asleep, and wake up later? I mean, these are, these are the real questions of, I'm only teasing. But here's a question, is, is prayer important? Does prayer matter? Is it the sort of thing we should talk about? You know, in a survey of churches in North America, only 3% of the churches surveyed responded that prayer was one of their top priorities as a church. So if you go to a church, there's a 97% chance in North America that prayer will not be considered a top priority for that Christian community. This fascinates me because in another survey of people that live in North America, over half of the people surveyed said that in one way or another, they pray every single day. So if you go to a church, there's a 97% chance that prayer will not be a top priority for that church, but if you just stop a random person on the street, there's a one in two chance that they will pray on the day that you stop them. 
I mean, maybe they'll pray because you're stopping them in the street to ask them that question. I mean, let's not rule that out entirely. Maybe that's what was going on with this survey. Oh, dear God, not this person. Have you prayed? Yes, right now. Um, I hadn't thought about that until I started saying that right this very second. I mean, think about the things that we don't do every day that we think are very important. Think about the things that we talk about all the time that we don't do every day, and yet prayer, this thing that apparently half of us do every single day in some form or another, we don't really know what to do with that. James Martin says this, and I love the, the notion that he explores here, your desire for prayer reveals something about how God created you. Deep within you is a natural desire to communicate with God to share yourself with God, to have God hear your voice, or more basically, to encounter God. Deep within you is a longing to be in a relationship with God, so you long to pray. It doesn't matter if you weren't taught how to pray. It doesn't matter whether you don't come from a faith tradition. It's fascinating that that over half of us in North America respond daily to that longing to pray. And maybe some of those prayers are not what you and I would recognize perhaps as prayers. Or maybe even the person saying them isn't really sure what they're saying. But there's something inside us that longs for something beyond us that we would call God. But here's the thing. How many of us are confident in prayer? Like I've pastored for for quite a few years now, and I've noticed it's the one thing people are not confident in. Now, that might just be because I'm the pastor, so whenever I'm around, people don't want to pray because I think people assume that one of a pastor's primary jobs is scoring prayers. <laughs> you know, it's like whenever any of you all invite me to your house, I always have to pray for the food. Now, I don't know if that's because you know something about the food that I don't, and you're like, well, you know, he seems to, you know, or whether it's more likely the case of I'm not praying in front of the pastor, but even as simple a prayer as Lord bless this food, we, we find ourselves going, ah, I'm not sure that my prayer is good enough. Most of us don't feel confident in prayer. We know that we should pray. We kind of pick that up from reading scripture and listening to sermons and coming to services. We're like, yeah, we definitely should pray, but I'm not really sure I know how to pray. I'm definitely not sure I know how to pray together. It's a pretty safe bet that if I said right now, hey, why doesn't somebody just pray for us right now? Most of us would think, yes, that would be nice if somebody else did that, (laughs) but definitely not me. Now, we know we should pray. We don't know necessarily how to pray. Whenever you're in a situation where you know you should do something, you don't know how to do it, it is beautiful, fertile territory to grow guilt, right? Because, because now I'm like, I should be doing this. I don't know how to do this, so I'm just going to sit over here not knowing how, feeling bad about it. Now, the reason I think this is an interesting paradox to be in is because when it comes to prayer, Jesus actually helps us with this. In a conversation with his list, to some listeners and disciples and followers that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, partway through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns to the subject of prayer. And these words will be partially familiar to probably many of us in this room, but I want to revise them just again so that we can remember what it is that Jesus says. Now, Jesus begins the conversation in Matthew chapter 6, talking about how some people like to show off when they pray. That small group of people that appear to be super confident in prayer in Jesus' time, and they like to stand in public places and pray really fancy prayers that everybody else is impressed by. 
And Jesus, his response to that is say, is, is basically, don't, don't be like that, okay? Instead, he says, when you pray, go into your room. Now, Jesus isn't asking us here to only ever pray in a room. He's asking us to remember that when we pray, we're talking to God, not showing off to each other. And if you're not certain about that, if you're in your room on your own, you're definitely not showing off to anybody else. So he's giving us some framework here. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. And you, you recognize this bit. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now these words are really familiar. And I don't want to unpack all of these words with us this morning, but their familiarity is also their beauty. The fact that you can actually remember this prayer and I wonder if I was to ask us, when did you learn this prayer? I wonder how many of us would not know the answer to that. Like, I don't know when I learned this prayer. Some of us might wonder, was there ever a point that I didn't know this prayer? For some of us, maybe it's new, but you've noticed, actually, I don't need to say this prayer that many times, and it's actually quite easy to remember. It's short. It's simple. But notice what Jesus does for us here. He essentially gives us what we would call a prayer liturgy. Now, the word liturgy just describes the things we do when we worship. And liturgy is always built of two things, things you do and things you say. So notice Jesus gives us some things to do, right? Like don't show off, right? Don't be wordy. I mean, it's only prayer he's talking about here, not sermons. Um, <laughs> he's like, he's like don't, don't be wordy. Don't, don't show off. God sees you. You don't need to talk God into submission, Jesus is saying, because he knows what you need before he asks him. So here's your designs on what to do, but then here's what you should say, Jesus says. Here's words that you can use that will guide you towards talking to God well. And I don't know about you, when I read this, I am struck that this is Jesus telling us how to pray. And despite that, I'm struck by the simplicity of this prayer. Children can understand this prayer. But yet, equally, scholars can marvel at the depth that Jesus puts into this prayer and what it calls out in us. It's simple. It's easy. Do this. Say this. It's about the basics of our lives, our, our desire for just something to eat every day, but then the huge vision of God's shalom that his kingdom would come on earth. Now, depending on your tradition, you'll have perhaps different reactions to this prayer. So some, some people are like, man, we used to pray this all the time when we were kids, and I don't, I'm just like, whenever I hear this prayer, I switch off. And then other people are like, well, you know what? I think this isn't actually a prayer that we're supposed to pray. I think it's more a guideline as to how prayer goes. And, and basically, I've realized in my experience as a pastor, anywhere in between those spectrums, you find Christians that have different reactions to this prayer. If I can be personal for a moment, and if not, then you hopefully you'll forgive me in three months' time. 
But some guidance of some people that are very influential in my life. I took a vow just over a year ago, and part of that vow was to pray this prayer twice a day, um, which I thought would lead to me being really bored with this prayer. Um, what's happened is exactly the opposite. That the more these words become part of me and the more these words actually start to shape and define me, I actually find that I'm praying this prayer sometimes that I can now say in, in, without really thinking about. I also find that when I commit myself to pray it regularly, I keep finding new beauty in it. I find myself some mornings praying this prayer and going, oh my goodness, that kind of landed differently than, it's like, it's like watching your favorite movie multiple times. And then one time after like the 14th viewing, you see something you never saw before. And you're like, is this like the director's cut? Uh, and you're like, no, it's the same one I've always watched, but somehow today I saw something slightly different. And what I've learned, because I come from a tradition that if you said anything twice, that just wasn't very creative, and you should be creative because God doesn't want to hear you repeat yourself. Um, and that was the sort, of, the sort of way that I was kind of brought up to think about some of these sorts of things. And we'll, I'll come back to that in just a, a minute or two. But what I'm learning is that there's great beauty in just living in Jesus' words and actually just taking the words of Jesus and saying, if this is what Jesus told us to do, let's just repeat it. And it's easy, by the way, to just say that prayer without any effort. It's easy to say that prayer without any thought. It's easy to say it from memory and not think about it. But it's also possible to come to words that we know well and be fully present to them as we say them, as we pray them. Like many of you probably met somebody at some point in your life, whether it was your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or your child, and you told them for the first time that you loved them. And it's possible to say that multiple times and some days mean it and some days not mean it, but it is possible to tell someone you love them for the 5,000th time and actually mean it more after 5,000 times than it was when you met, said it the first time. I suppose the question I'm asking myself is, can that be true of prayer also? Can it be possible that in the words and the repeating, new depth is found? Why I'm interested in this is because my question as a pastor and as one of the leaders of this community is, what does it mean for us to be a community that learns how to pray? What does it mean for us to be the type of people that are learning how do we pray together as a community, individually when we're not together as a community? What does it look like to be a praying people? What does it look like that church isn't something that we simply observe, but something that we participate in? This is part of the reason, in case I've not made this clear in the past, that we've tried increasingly to invite you to use your voice in our services, to step out, to confess the creed. Randy spoke a few weeks ago about how the creed can be a form of prayer, that we can pray the things that we believe to God. But then we do the Psalms together. The Psalms are a book of prayers. And, and we invite our voices to join together because we want to learn how to pray. And if you don't know how to pray, the Lord's Prayer is a really good prayer to pray. If you really want to move beyond that at some point, the Psalms are beautiful words to pray. And little side note here, one of the reasons that praying the Psalms is fantastic is I guarantee you there's at least one psalm that you will pray one day and ask yourself this question, is it okay to say that to God? <laughs> and you'll have this moment of, wait a minute, it's in the Bible, so it must be. <laughs> and so we have this, this way of how do we, as a community, pray together 
but we're inviting each other. When we see those bold words on the screen, it's a sense of you are welcome to pray, to talk to this creator God that wants to hear from you. But here's what I'm noticing. Being a community that learns how to pray together presents a little challenge, particularly in a community like Westside. Essentially, my question is really more fully, not just how do we learn to pray, but how do we learn to pray in the midst of all of our diversity? Because this is a very diverse room. And by diversity has multiple layers to it, doesn't it? There's, there's multiple types of diversity. But I know from one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that people talk to you um, unless they've done something wrong and then they avoid you because they think we know. <laughs> and we really don't. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But I really, I, no, actually, no, I'm not teasing. I don't know when you've done anything wrong. Yeah, sorry. I think that you know what I mean even if I don't. <laughs> we did a, we're in the midst of a survey at the moment where you can still fill it in if you've not had a chance to. Um, one of the questions that we asked in the survey, uh, we, we created sort of space for you to leave comments. And, and I, you know, a lot of the survey is super encouraging. Uh, it's really exciting to hear back from you just sort of anonymously, like, hey, what are you thinking? Um, Mostly encouraging, there was somebody who said, David used to be good at preaching, but it's not so good anymore, so that was super pumped. Uh, that really, thank you, and God bless you. Um, uh, <laughs> but but um, one of the questions we snuck into the survey, this time you may have noticed, we asked a question about your Christian tradition. Uh, we asked a question about, like, what were you sort of doing church faith-wise before you came to Westside? And, and that's a question we've not asked before, but we were noticing in a lot of our conversations that we're having with people increasingly, even though Westside you know, West was planted as part of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, we were sort of getting in the feeling when we talked to people that that wasn't really our, our demographic uh, with each other. And, and what we discovered was this, that 60, so far anyway, it looks like, 60% um, of our congregation seem to come broadly from about three traditions. Um, the, the biggest tradition uh, that, that gathers here in Westside uh, considered themselves evangelical. That was their background. So that'd be like alliance churches, uh, Baptist churches, these, these sort of, these type of churches. 17% of the congregation said that their background prior to Westside was Pentecostal. 10% said Anglican. And then 40% of a variety of different sort of, you know, Mennonites and Reformed backgrounds, Lutheran, this, this sort of thing. I'm super excited by this, by the way. So thank you for answering that question, uh, honestly. Because it, it, it helped me see something that I've been suspicious of, that we are, even in terms of our faith traditions, a, a pretty diverse group of people that gather in the room on any given Sunday. And, and I wanna say this really clearly, you're all welcome. Right? Uh, and so like, don't be like, oh my goodness, this is a church like this, I, I better keep quiet what my background was before I came here. You know, we're here, and this is why we say the creed, right? This is our confession of, of the one God and the one Jesus, and that's who we're following here. So you are all welcome, but here's a question about welcome. What does welcome mean, right? If I say to you, would you like to come to my house for supper? Don't worry, I'll pray for the food. And, um, and, and, <laughs> and, and you come to my house for supper, and I open the door, and, you know, maybe I give you a high five or a hug if that's appropriate, you know, as you come into my house. This is feeling welcome, right? Um, and then we get to the dinner table, and I say, I know that you are a vegetarian, but I really like cooking meat, so I've made a meat dinner tonight, right? 
Now, how much do I need to hug you at the door to overwhelm the fact that I'm making you now eat meat? It right? doesn't matter how welcoming I was, no matter how many balloons I put out front, no matter how, how well I took your coat from you, the fact that I knew you were vegetarian but did not make a vegetarian meal, it kind of squashes the hospitality, doesn't it? And I think sometimes what happens in church life is we say everybody's welcome, and what we mean by that is we do things this way, and if you're happy to do things this way, you're welcome here. <laughs> and if you're not, well, you know, let us give you a list of other churches that you will potentially fit into. What I'm wrestling with as a pastor, is now as I'm seeing the numbers and the, and the data that's coming back, which is confirming something I was very suspicious of, so I'm not surprised by this, is what does it mean for us as a community to hospitably worship Jesus together? What does it look like for us to pray in all our diversity? And I, th I actually think that this convergence of all these different backgrounds in the one room, like I'm really excited by this. I, I need you to hear that if it's not obvious. I'm really excited by this. See, because like 30% of our community come from evangelical backgrounds. Evangelicals love the Bible. Right? Generally, you go and speak to evangelical churches, that's where you'll hear language like Bible-based, you'll hear language like biblically rooted, biblically informed, and all of those languages will come out. And maybe some of you have had bad experiences of that. I, I, I'm aware of that. But some of you also realize that the roots of that is, let's wrestle with Scripture and learn from it because we think that will share our lives. You know, I want us to be a community that we wrestle with Scripture and it shapes our lives. I think that's a, a beautiful thing. But then there's also the Pentecostals. I grew up within Pentecostal tradition, and Pentecostals value the spirit and the spontaneity. Pentecostal services have start times, but not finish times, right? Uh, you know you're in a Pentecostal church because nobody has dinner in the oven, because that, like dinner in the oven is just a flat lack of faith, okay? And uh, because you think you know when you're getting out from here, and, uh, and we don't know that in a Pentecostal church. <laughs> and, and I love that sense that at any moment, God's spirit will move. And, and we're open to hear what God has to say to us in that particular way. But I also, I also love the Anglicans and their, and their pursuit of the beauty of the table of the Lord. And they say, God is in the room with us. And we come to the table and Jesus is with us at the table. And, and I love that reverence and that respect and that awareness of the sacramental. I love how Mennonites pursue justice. I love how they care what goes on in the world. They care about peace and they care that we're different and that we're shaped differently because of what Jesus called us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the thing. I don't want to choose between any of those things. I don't want to say that one's bad and this one's good and let's give up that and let's move to the next one. I'd love to try and figure out how to hold all those things together in common. When Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, he says this, be completely humble. This is chapter four and verse two. What a word that is, by the way. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he says this, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. If you were baptized in an evangelical church, somebody else was baptized in a Pentecostal church, somebody else was baptized in an Anglican church, one baptism. You came to faith in a Roman Catholic church, you now are in a Mennonite church, 
one Jesus. It's one Jesus, it's one Lord, it's one baptism. But then Paul throws in this, but each of us get a different grace. Like the evangelicals, then they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna follow scripture. Pentecostals are like, what is the Holy Spirit doing right now? The Anglicans call us around the table. The Mennonites say, no, no, but what about peace? Different graces on each of us. And we've all grown up through these different traditions that have called us to see different things. And Paul invites us to this huge challenge where he says, but it's all about one Jesus. It's all about one Lord. My question is, are we willing to navigate what it looks like to do this faith together? Are we open to worship alongside Anglicans? Are we interested in hearing what the Pentecostals have to say? Are we gonna learn from the evangelicals? Are we prepared to embrace the ideas of the Mennonites? But here's something I wanna say, and maybe this is maybe more pastoral chat, less sermon for a moment. If we're gonna do this, if we're gonna wrestle with what Paul says here in Ephesians 4, I think we're gonna to have to learn to stop speaking poorly about traditions. I think we're gonna to have to learn to stop speaking poorly about our tradition, and I think we're gonna to have to learn to stop speaking poorly about other people's traditions. Think about the terms I've used so far in the sermon, and there are more, and if I haven't mentioned your particular tradition, it's not an intentional attempt to exclude. But we use terms like Pentecostal, Evangelical, Anglican, Mennonite, Roman Catholic. None of these are negative terms. None of these are bad things. But I've started to notice that we use them that way sometimes. Like our critiques, and I hear the critiques that are said, sometimes in conversation, sometimes in congregational feedback, will say, I don't really like this part of the service because it was a bit too Anglican. Or I don't really like this because it reminded me a bit evangelical. Now think about this. If we say something like this, that was a bit too Anglican, what we're saying is that bit of the service or this bit of our church community was a bit too much like 10% of our community. Now, if you're in that 10%, that's not overly encouraging. If you're one of those Anglicans here in the community, you don't feel overly welcome when somebody says, mm, I like that, but it was a bit too Anglican. Or if you've been raised Pentecostal and somebody's like, well, one thing you need to know is we'll, we'll never do anything Pentecostal or we'll never do anything evangelical or we'll never do anything Mennonite. And I just, I wanna call us to this realization that we're all in this space together and so we have to learn how to speak to each other and about each other well. Because I think when we speak badly of our traditions, I think it's kind of sad. And I think it should sadden us. You know, we started saying the creed together as we kind of relaunched out of the pandemic. We wanted to confess our faith corporately. And one of the challenges of saying the creed together is this moment in the creed, perhaps you've noticed it, where it says uh, that we confess the Holy Catholic Church. And the word Catholic just means universal church, it means all Christians. When we, when we invite each other to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're not asking you to confess and agree with everything that Roman Catholics have done throughout all of history. Like, of course we're not. When we say that we're Pentecostals, 
Like we're really not asking you to agree with and confess to the sort of things that some Pentecostal megachurches have done that they're making documentaries about right now. I'm being careful with my language here, can you tell? When we say that our largest demographic in this church is evangelicals, we're not aligning ourselves with the political agenda of certain evangelicals in North America. What we're saying is these traditions have goodness in them. They have things we can learn from. Have they done things wrong? Of course they have. Have we? Of course we have. The idea is not that we're pursuing the perfect tradition to hook our wagon onto, but to rather hold ourselves in a place where we say humans are broken, therefore all of our expressions of attempting to follow God will have some brokenness to them, but also opportunities for us to learn. Let me say it like this. Your faith tradition that you come from isn't deep enough. No matter what faith tradition that is, it's not deep enough. It's good, but it's not deep enough. You will find somebody, and here's the beautiful thing. They're in this room. You will find somebody in this room who has a tradition that will help you get deeper into God. The really beautiful thing is, while you're helping them, while they're helping you, you can help them. Because they're going to say, hey, we found this really helps our spirituality. And you, you can learn from that while saying, hey, by the way, we used to do this. And you can learn from this. Each of our traditions is only part of the story. And here's the thing that I really want to hold us to. Any church tradition that you're part of, no matter what one it is, it has given you good gifts. But it's also given you profound blind spots. So if you come from one particular way of thinking, there's, there's things you just won't see about the problems with the way that you've grown up or the way that you've been shaped or the way that you came to faith. And this constant tension between the gift and the blind spot calls us as Christians to tread carefully because we often make two common mistakes when we become aware of this. The one mistake we make is we're going to defend our tradition above all else. Ours is right, everybody else's is wrong. So I'm going to defend the good and ignore the blind spots. Or what we do is we go, oh my goodness, look at these blind spots, and then we reject all of the good that we inherited from that particular tradition. And you see this all the time. Christians either become superly, excessively committed to their way, or they demonize their way and move on to something else. This either-or way of thinking actually doesn't really help us. So I want to think a little tiny bit about that as, as, as I kind of try and bring things into a land of some sort today. When we think either or, it sort of works like this, that we begin with an idea of knowledge, we'll call this point one, and as we're in point one, eventually we realize, wait a minute, there's another step. There's a step to, the, to, to, this, to this number two way of thinking. And so one, eventually you realize, I need to leave number one way of thinking and move to number two way of thinking, right? Um, invariably what happens at this point is we then look at people in number one way of thinking going, look at those idiots back there thinking like ones, you know, you can think like a two. And, uh, and, then, and then eventually after a while, we're like, oh wait, there's a three. And then we move to three and we're like, oh my goodness, how slow was I when I was a two? And don't even get me started on the ones, right? And, and what we do is we, we have this philosophy of growth that says that, that we have to reject the one stage in order to move to the next stage. And it's always about rejecting and moving. So you hear this in church life, like, hey, you know, I was raised Pentecostal, but like, oh my goodness, did they have some issues? So now I'm an evangelical. And then you hear, you come back and circle around to that person some years later, and you know, it turned out there was some issues with being evangelical, so now I'm Anglican, because that, and, and it's this idea that the movement always involves rejection. 
But what if moving from step two to step three doesn't require rejection? What if actually it's just seen as part of the growth journey? And that's where we maybe move in our thinking from either or to both and, to what we might call including and transcending. That we begin in a place like number one, and eventually we realize, oh, there's a bigger way to express my faith. And as we move towards this number two, it's not a rejection of number one, but a growth that now somehow all of the things we learned at one are now involving in number two, and then the same when we move to number three. So maybe your language now becomes, you know, I was raised in Pentecostal spirituality. I deeply appreciate the spontaneity and the experience of the Spirit, but actually I've also stepped in to include some Anglican spirituality in my life now, and I'm loving the spontaneity of the Spirit, but also the rote prayers. I love praying the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis and also speaking in tongues, because that's possible. Nope, you're not sure. <laughs> and then actually, after a while of doing speaking in tongues in the Lord's Prayer, you know, I, I met a Mennonite who called me into the pursuit of justice and the way of peace of Jesus. And now I'm kind of speaking in tongues and standing up for what's right in the world and praying the Lord's Prayer on a, re a regular basis. And I'm kind of seeing a connection between all of these things. Thinking like either or will always force you to choose between a smaller truth and a big truth. They'll say, this is the small truth, now you've got to reject it to choose the big truth. Whereas an include and transcend approach invites you to bring the small truth into the bigger truth and keep growing in your understanding, keep growing in your pursuit of Jesus. So here's what I want to say. I think the secret, if there is a secret, to a vibrant prayer life as a community is to confess that we swim in a deep stream. And the stream is always deeper than the bit that we're in. There's always a deeper place of God to find. And so what would it look like to try and learn from all the Christian traditions? What if our mindset was, you know what? We've never prayed like that before. Let's take a little step into that. And at some level, we're trying to tease each other into that the way that we're doing our services at the minute. Hey, why don't you say the creed with us? It's gonna feel a little strange when you first do it for the first time. I don't know if you remember, Randy shared a couple of weeks ago, I loved what Randy shared, where he was like, hey, listen, when we started doing this, I was like, this is a little bit weird, but now it's worship for me. Because it's a little invitation to say, hey, step into something deeper. And written prayers feel a little weird if you grew up in a tradition like me. But I love, as a pastor, sitting or standing as we do these responsive prayers and hearing all of our voices praying to God at the same time. But here's what gets really exciting, is we have the creed that shapes our beliefs and written prayers that invite us to pray together. If we start to think about these as scaffolding that creates space for the evangelical love of Scripture, for the Holy Spirit to be present the way that the Pentecostals are used to it, and somehow God is present to us in all of these things. I want to give you a little tool to help you with this that I think you might find helpful. What if we think about prayer like a three-legged stool? Then the, what happens to us as humans is almost always when we come to something new, when we come to uh, any style of prayer that's different, for example, most humans, and don't feel bad about this, most humans, when something's new, we kind of just step back a little bit. We're like, oh, I'm not so sure about this. And that's that's why we don't get eaten by bears, and it's why we don't get bitten by snakes, because we have this natural sense of it's new. Let me just step back to make sure that, you know, everything's going to be okay. So I understand that, and I'm not criticizing that. But when we step back, how do we make the assessment to know to lean back forward again? 
And here are three questions you can ask. Somebody invites you to pray with them someday. And their tradition is different from yours. And you're fighting that natural sense of, oh, I'm not sure what to do about this. I want to kind of lean away and just defend my own little space. Three questions. How does what they're inviting me to do align with my understanding of the teachings of the church? Of the teachings of scripture, sorry. Like, is the prayer they're inviting me to, can I see it in scripture? Can I see the words that it's using are in agreement with the story of Jesus? Can I, can I feel God's presence in the pages of scripture represented in this style of prayer, this way of prayer, the words of these prayer? Same question is, how does this prayer fit within the wider context of the church? So maybe somebody says, hey, listen, I've got this beautiful prayer from a book, and you come from a tradition that doesn't pray prayers for books, and your natural sense is, oh, I'm not sure what to do about that. But just remember that, you know, for years, the church have been praying from prayer books to guide us. But conversely, maybe this person is, let's pray, and they don't have a book. And you're like, oh, my goodness. You know, like, how can you pray without a book? Like, you have to have somebody guide you in the words to pray. But remember that for a lot of church history, people couldn't read, so they didn't have books. So they prayed prayers that they came from their own heart. And then finally, third, the Holy Spirit is in you. So what's going on in your spirit as you hear this prayer? Maybe it's brand new and it's different and it's not the style that you're used to, but is God kind of drawing you towards it? And this three-legged stool becomes a safe thing to sit on if you can feel, okay, I can feel scripture in this, I can feel church tradition in this, and I can feel the Holy Spirit's guiding me towards this as well. Now, of course, you're gonna interpret that through your own filter, through your own experiences, but it's a little way to help us pay attention because really my pastoral heart for us in this is how do we stop rejecting the different? How do we stop rejecting a tradition that's not the one that we know? And that's kind of almost what I want to do that takes us back to what Jesus said. Jesus is just giving us guidance and structure to help us with. And that's kind of what we want to do at Westside. It's kind of why we're teaching series like this. How do we as a church create guidance and structures for prayer that allows all of us to grow in all of our diversity? Like, I'm encouraged when I hear us pray prayers together as a community. And I know for some of us, it's really strange for the words that we pray to come up on the screen. But think about it. Last week, we prayed for the government, which we got a government, you know? And maybe it was the government you wanted. Maybe it was the government you didn't want. But we prayed for them because we were reminded to pray for them. And we also have prayers that we pray where we pray for the sick. And maybe you don't know anyone's sick, but someone's sick. And we invite ourselves as community to pray these prayers because it calls us to things. And then we've also, whenever we've done corporate prayers, we've prayed for the poor and, and those who are ignored. And this morning, Darcia was telling us that there's people out there who are being ignored and actually need simple levels of help that our prayers can encourage us into practical spaces to help with. Maybe it's not how you're used to doing things. And for that, all I would ask is for some patience. Because I think when we're patient and we're open and we're hospitable, God might start to stir something in our hearts. So please, here's what I'd say. Don't resist different just because it's not the tradition that you grew up with. And please, please, please don't reject your tradition because you think what we're saying is our way's better. Rather, let's live in the convergence and the beauty of all of these things to give all of us a bigger picture of God that you learn from me, that I learn from you. And as we learn to pray together, God starts to do beautiful things in our hearts. So listen, if you don't pray, 
Do what Jesus says. Oh, it's a different slide, sorry. <laughs> do what Jesus says, which is just pray Jesus' prayer. And then maybe sometimes just throw a few of your own thoughts in on the end just to kind of bring it into your own personal space. Maybe you grew up praying free prayers and you're always just praying whatever is on your mind. And that's beautiful. Keep praying whatever's on your mind. But maybe throw the Lord's Prayer in once in a while or buy a book of prayers and see if that doesn't give you some words that you've not used before. And maybe you always pray in one particular way. Find a friend at Westside who's from a different tradition and say, hey, can I pray with you? And watch what they do differently and try it out sometime. And if you grew up like me in a spontaneous Pentecostal context, then get a book of prayers, read those prayers, and then pray in tongues afterwards because you love it. <laughs> and that's what you called us to do. Let me, um, let me show you this here. Let, let's end with this. I'm going to invite Doug to come up onto the, to the